Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about all sorts of interesting things, including film and stupid people and stupid people in film, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I am I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Uh, with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello, Lauren. And how are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I've had a headache for like three days because of all the pollen in the air, Uh-huh. but other than that, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing okay. Uh-huh. Well, here in New York, we are having a heat wave, so that's exciting. I'm so happy that that's happening right now. <laughs> Just so- before I got on here, my uh, I was scrolling through Facebook and my cousin who lives in uh, Ohio, maybe? I can't remember. Somewhere, somewhere closer to you than to me. Um, he, he was like, Alexa says it's 77 out. She's a lying whore. i mean granted it's not too bad yet at least not where i'm sitting i haven't like hung out outside for an extended period of time but it's yeah it's supposed to be it's supposed to hit 92 today i think which is quite warm for uh here and at this time of year particularly especially because you guys get the humidity when it's warm right yeah. yeah, it's it's very humid right now, generally. Like that's honestly the worst. If if it were drier, I would have a better time of it. But yeah, otherwise, you just kind of feel like lying around everywhere, but then you stick to your own furniture. So. <laughs> yeah. It cracks me up when people here complain about the humidity because I'm just like, clearly you've never lived anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> because it is not humid in California. I mean, compared to Arizona, sure. But but uh yeah. If you've been to the south, if you've been to the east, it is, it is very, very dry in California. Oh, God. I mean, the, the one of the worst. We're not going to talk about the weather the entire time. But, um, no, this the, is not a weather of, podcast. One of the worst experiences of my life was heading down to Florida in, it was actually in June. Um, it was late June, early July. So it was sort of the height of the summer. Mm-hmm. And and it was, you know, it was fine in New York. It was like in the 70s and 80s, you know, pretty normal. And then the further south we got, the hotter it got and the more humid it got. Like we hit Ugh. Georgia. We were just like, why would anyone live here? <laughs> why? And by the time we got to Florida, just like God has forsaken us. Like this. <laughs> The, the best part is that we were vis- I was visiting a friend of mine um, and with a couple of other friends who were doing a road trip. We got there and she like came running out to, to say hello to us. She's like, hi guys, I'm so glad that you're here. The air conditioning's broken. Oh no. So we spent the first, our first night in Florida actually sleeping out on deck chairs out by her pool because it was oh so gosh. hot inside oh. that we just could like, could not stand it. Even with all the fans going everything, it was, yeah, so it was an experience, I must say. So yeah, Florida is, is forsaken by God. That's all, that's all I have to say about that. Pretty um, much. 
<laughs> Moving on, we are actually going to talk about films today. Um, and first of all, it is Pride Month, so we are very excited about this. We're going to talk about some of our favorite queer films, bearing in mind the fact that we are two cisgender straight white women. So, you know, we basically, we I mean, is anybody really completely straight? No one's completely straight. I, I think that everyone is on, I think is on a sliding scale, basically. But you know, if you uh, probably if you if we identified, uh, uh, we would probably say, yeah, heterosexual, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's becoming more and more questionable as time goes on. Um, <laughs> we don't need to get into that today. <laughs> but, um, but so bearing that in mind that, that we're just sort of talking about some of the films that we like and, um, you know, some of the films that are, are fairly important in film history and things like that, just to kind of put a little disclaimer on that. We're not trying to um, say that this is the be all and end all of how we're defining queer cinema or queer theory. Uh, but first, uh, we really wanted to talk about Cannes because they announced their main slate, their official slate uh, this week. And of course there's some good things, you know, we've got Wes Anderson's new film. Um, I don't know if this is good, but Paul Verhoeven's uh, erotic nun story. I have no idea what that's going to be like, although I have a guess. Um, so there's some interesting films that are going to be a can. It's of course pretty exciting because obviously there, there wasn't the same, the same thing last year. And it's kind of nice that, you know, this thing is actually getting going again. We're actually getting festivals again. We can get excited about new releases more. Um, and, and, you know, even though we're still in the midst of a pandemic, everybody, it is kind of nice to, to actually see that life continues to move ahead and we're beginning to get some of the things that we enjoy. Of course, Cam also succeeded in once again, tying its record for a number of female directors. So, <laughs> and, and I loved how some publications were framed this just like, Ken has the most ever female directors <laughs> it's ever had. It's just like, yeah, it's like tied itself for three or four years now. Yeah. With four. We've got four women, four female directors. In competition. In yeah. competition, right? And, and I mean, come on guys, come on. Uh, th this is this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I mean, Can has um, a reputation now of being of being sort of the old guard. Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of they're they tr they're trying to be tastemakers. They're trying to be um, you know they're trying to still kind of occupy this very elite position. And it's rapidly becoming clear that they're not particularly interesting anymore. A lot of, even a lot of the films that they're premiering now are very it's very predictable. Um, you know, Wes Anderson's new film. Okay, sure. Of course. Why wouldn't you have that? Uh, it's very white, very predictable, very, um, you know, I, ne I want to avoid saying the word elitist because I don't think that that's a helpful distinction, but there is something quite, um, there's, there's an in-club going on here. There's an in-group yeah. and an out-group, and it definitely feels like that that's what Ken is doing yet again this year. Four female directors, I mean, congratulations to them, but still four female directors is, is not enough. And uh, the, the very idea that, the, oh, there are only four uh, female directors that have made worthy films is yeah. bullshit. Like that's just not true. Yeah, it's that same, um, but it reminds me of a couple years ago when the 
I think it was the Venice Film Festival president was saying like, well, but we don't want to go to 50-50 because then that's unfair because then we're just telling women like, oh, you're just here because we have to include you. And it's like, um, or you could just include half women because they make great movies too. Like, hello, you know, it's the same, it's the same attitude. Like, well, there's only four women who directed films that deserve to be at this year's Cannes. You know, and and if we did more than that, then it would really not be fair to them because it would just be, you know, like patting them on the head. It's like, no, that's not that's not true. I mean, we had. Well, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the thing that there's this attitude just like, well, we don't want to pander. It's just like, well, no one's asking you to pander to anyone. But it is insane that you think that you cannot even that you cannot find more than four women. Right. Yeah. in order it like i don't i don't believe them in other words because i've seen enough films and i've seen right. enough i've also seen enough mediocre films directed by very beloved white men that i'm like no this including ones that appeared at camp mm-hmm. um and just like no this is not like you 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 can definitely find more and you can definitely make more of an effort to be more inclusive and, and that's, that's all that people are asking of these festivals. That's all that they really want to, that's all that we really want to see is more diversity. Like stop showing us the same old people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly even, you know, and, and it's not taking away from the women who did get nominated. It's not taking away from any of the other films that are appearing in competition this year to say that like, you know, maybe there are other films that are just as worthy to be there and are not, you know, just directed by white people, just directed by white men. There's no reason to not make more of an effort than this, and and they're they're obviously not. And I I think that a lot of I think that a lot of it is this old guard mentality. Um, you know, the French generally and Cannes in particular have been very um, very old school, mm-hmm. and and they're they're still acting like it's the 1960s. You know, and and it wasn't cool in the 1960s. It's not cool now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So we did have a question. Um, at, we had a couple of questions about Can actually, but I want to start with uh, I want to start with the one from Owen Daly. What is your favorite Palm Door winner that you've seen? And I actually had to go and look up because I do not, amazingly enough, I do not have a, a running uh, tally of who has won the Palm Door. What you don't have them the all memorized? I can't I believe don't. you. But some interesting films have won the Palm Door. The the it was called the Grand Prix. Um, up until 1955, I think. And then it switched to the Palm Door. So we're gonna count all of the films that won that kind of top award, basically, yeah. uh, as, as part of that. But there are some really interesting films um, that won that award, including one of my favorite uh, Clouseau films is The Wages of Fear in 1953. So this was a couple of years before it began to be called the Palm Door. Um, which is, it's about, basically it's about truck drivers who are trying to transport um, nitroglycerin over very rough roads. <laughs> and, and what's wonderful about it is of course, there's always that, ten- that constant tension of like, you know, if you hit a pothole, you might die. Um, but of course, a whole bunch of different things happen over the course of the film that endanger them and that also kind of reveal the, the stakes for, the, for these various men and how they're experiencing fear and how they're reacting to fear. Because it's as much about their own nerves and their personalities as it is about the fact that they're transporting nitroglycerin. So that's one of my favorites, definitely. Do you have like a major favorite? 
Well, I mean, parasite. (laughs) (laughs) Parasite. I think it's a good answer. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that was honestly, that was what kickstarted its, its journey to Oscar, which is funny because a lot of movies that win, um, if you just go back in the last, you know, 20 years, most of the films that have won the Palme d'Or did not go on even to a Best Picture nomination, let alone to win. But, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's such an amazing film. I love it so much. But then another one that I did, I forgot actually another recent movie, but I forgot that it won the Palme d'Or was I, Daniel Blake by Ken Loach, which is a really great film about, um, just trying to navigate bureaucracy when you have been ill um, and just trying like this, it's a guy who wants desperately to get back to work after he's had a heart attack and he's just running into one obstacle after another because of the system. And then he meets a woman who's a single mom with a couple of kids and, and they form this really sweet friendship and they're trying to help each other out. And um what I what I really love about that film is, first of all, that the two don't get together. It really, truly is just a friendship. Um, but also, you know, like there is that um, business from, I don't know, Florida or something this week that made the news for posting a sign that, well, since nobody, which I've seen re- similar things recently, but like, since nobody wants to work, they just want to stay at home and get handouts. We're short staffed, you know, and it's this, this attitude against government handouts. And I think that I, Daniel Blake is such a great story that really gets to the heart of like, no, people want to work. They want to be able to support themselves. The government gets in its own way and gets in people's way by making things so difficult. So I think it's a great film. And uh, I was very happy to remember that it, or realize, or I don't know, uh, that it won the Palme d'Or a couple of years ago. You know, reading through the list, the Palme d'Or has so many different, it's, it's a weird award. Like it's very difficult to predict who's going to win because, and if you just go back through history, you've got, you know, Hollywood films um, that are winning. You've got like in 1965, the knack and how to get it, which is a (laughs) Richard Lester film. Um, It's a good film, but it's a, it's a British sex comedy. Like it's, it's a very odd winner for that. And and the year before that, it was the umbrellas of Sherbert by uh, Jacques Demy. Um, Later, you know, Blow Up by Antonioni, MASH won in 1970. Um, I love the ones that tied. Yeah. Uh, Apocalypse <laughs> Now and the Tin Drum tied in 1979. All That Jazz and Kagamusha <laughs> tied in 1980, which I think is a great pairing. I want to see that in like a, a double feature. Let's just yes. watch the Bob Fosse, like death musical and Kurosawa's Kagamusha. Like, let's just do both of them at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. It's great. Um, yeah, Farewell My Concubine tied with the piano in 1993. Uh, there, there's some really interesting ones, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd award and it is difficult to predict. And um, uh, some of the more recent ones, I think, other than Parasite are very more predictable, I guess, uh, you know, and not, not as good. I mean, Blue is the Warmest Color one in 2013, The Square one in 2017. 
who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the tree of life one. Tree which, of life, yeah. yeah. That's another, Terrence Malick is another one that, um, and I think that he, even when the stories don't make any sense and, and the movies are kind of incoherent, he does make beautiful films. Like they're gorgeous to look at. Um, and he is definitely a, a favorite at Cannes. Like they love Terrence Malick's films, even when they're bad. <laughs> Which I'm not saying Tree of Life is bad, but uh, Great. he's definitely I, one that they they always want to show his his stuff. So. Yeah, they do. It's it's very it, that's that's where it becomes very predictable. Those yeah. kinds of films. Yeah, he's one so, that if he's got a movie, it's gonna be a can. So it's not it's not saying that Terrence Monk is a bad director or anything, but that it's like of course you know of course you're gonna show talent, a Terrence yeah. Malick film, um, regardless of its quality at the time. Uh, yeah, Tree of Life is one of those that I liked it the first time I saw it. I thought it was really fascinating and deep. And then seeing it a second and a third time, I was like, oh, this is actually really kind of rote and predictable. It's just sort of overwhelmed by the imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel like the imagery makes it seem like it has greater depth than it actually does. Yeah, which I think is pretty typical of Malick's films. Yeah, it's... It, there are some exceptions films, a lot of his films are i'm sorry malik fans uh very superficial well um, you know we haven't gotten to those guys we've just been on the snyder and whatever <laughs> nolan so now it's time ser- it's christopher or it's terrence malik's turn i'm certain that someone is gonna be like how dare you say these horrible <laughs> things about terrence malik you know i will say <laughs> i will say last year uh or not 2020 but 2019 um I feel like 2020 is kind of a last year, even though there were so many great films last year, but um, he had, oh my gosh, the title escapes me now, but it's the World War II conscientious objector film. Um, oh my gosh, I cannot think of the title. Um, that one, it was like, I watched that and I think it kind of, I think if Jojo Rabbit hadn't been out at the same time, it probably would have um gotten a little farther you know it would have gotten more attention plus it came out kind of late in the season um but uh um oh my gosh what is that movie called a hidden life a hidden life oh um, okay yeah, yeah i thought I, I i watched that and i was like man this is the movie I've been waiting for him to make where it was like this really beautiful story that makes sense that follows a coherent narrative. Plus it just has really, really fascinating cinematography. He used some similar stuff to what they did for the favorite with like the, not quite the fisheye lenses, but a similar look to that. And I don't know. So it just like, it was a interesting, um, interesting look and interesting um craftsmanship but also just this beautiful story so yeah i i I had been waiting for another movie like that for a really long time Mm -hmm. because i really liked the new world and i think the new world was the last terrence malick film that i liked until hidden life came out i uh i made a comment the other day uh, in an argument about Chloe, the Chloe Zhao argument um, yeah. to to a guy who was like, who's arguing with me and he was pointing out that she she does say that she's influenced by Terrence Malick and I absolutely uh, agree with that and and I said <laughs> uh, and I said something about how well but she her films have greater depth 
Mm -hmm. Um, and so she may be influenced by, by him stylistically, but she obviously, you know, gives, gives greater depth, uh, to her characters and to her films and to the stories that, that she's telling using that style, because it's um, true. <laughs> than, <laughs> than he does. And he could, this, this dude completely stopped talking to me. Like he did. I don't know if he muted me or what, like, but I was just like, I get, I'm going to say that I won the argument. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what winning feels like. <laughs> so we do have another Cannes question um, uh, from at Paula Fangirls. If you could go to Cannes, would you attend? And what is the one, uh, what is the film that when you look back at the history of films that premiered at Cannes, um, you like, I cannot believe this premiered there. And she says for her that that is Shrek 2, which is, <laughs> which is true. I actually had to go back and like look for um what films premiered at Cannes that were kind of weird and there are definitely some odd ones cliffhanger from 1993 apparently oh my gosh premiered really? out of competition at Cannes yeah and so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't like this was in the running for the Palme d'Or or anything like that but I think that that is a very odd one cliffhanger is the, the 1993 Sylvester Stallone action movie right and it's completely <laughs> over the top it's a wild film but it, it it's a it's a fine kind of extreme action movie, but I don't know how that wound up again. <laughs> um, one of the other ones that I did not realize was Kung Fu Panda, which again, it's kind of like a, a Shrek, a Shrek mm -hmm. movie. Like if Shrek, so Shrek 2 premieres at Cannes, okay. Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> all right, you know, sure, why not? Again, cute film, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't seem like it quite, fits yeah. um so what do you have any thoughts about that karen because um there's some odd ones <laughs> the 1998 godzilla oh really wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay like okay. what that's a choice that's a choice <laughs> they, they, that was a choice that someone made yeah yeah that's that that's pretty funny um but yeah, I think I think the ones that you mentioned already, um, and definitely Shrek um, premiering there. That's it's very surprising. It's, so I find it weird that that a number of sequels premiered there. So like Shrek Two premiered at Cannes. Mm -hmm. um, X Men: The Last Stand premiered at Cannes. Um, the yeah, in <laughs> um, Star Star Wars Episode Three. The, oh yeah, uh, Revenge of the Sith. It was yeah. Okay. Uh huh. I again, I'm like, it's not necessarily a value judgment on the films, but they just do not fit. It's uh, just yeah. It's like you've got you've got all these like beautiful artistic movies, and then you've got uh, X Men: The Last Stand. What? <laughs> so once again, I would like to say that can can definitely find more than four female directors. If you can premiere Shrek two. Mm -hmm. You can definitely find more female directors. I am positive mm -hmm. of this. Exactly. I will say though, didn't Kung Fu Panda have a female director? Did it? I I, so. I, I honestly don't know. Well, good. Good. Hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> good good job, Ken. I think. I know the second one did. Oh no, the first one did not. Of course. <laughs> oh well. Uh, and so the other part of, of Paula's question is, if you could go to Ken, would you attend? Not this year. Um, Not this year, no. If I had, honestly, in some ways, I would like to go not being press. Um, if, if I just, if I was just able to go and like attend a few films, I think that there, 
Cannes sounds like a weird trip. That's all I have to say. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of requirements of it and there's a lot of posturing and things like that. But just to be able to go and to see some movies and to, you know, see the, the area, like be in that part of France, I think would be a lot of fun. But the more that I've learned about Cannes, the less I've wanted to actually attend. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to go. Um, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, I, as far as going for work, going as working press, I would be a little terrified because I don't want to be yelled at for not wearing the right shoes on the red carpet or, you know, or something like that. And you hear all those stories and it's just like, I don't, that's too much stress. You're already stressed because you're at a film festival and you're not sleeping enough and you're running around and you're trying to get all this work done. But then to also have to be worrying every minute that you're not putting on the right, you know, appearances or whatever. That's just, ah, that, that's too much. I like yeah. Sundance where I can just be in my coat and my jeans and my 18 layers of, of clothes and my boots and not worry about it. I mean, I, it, some of it gives me a flashback to, you know, when I was in whatever middle school or something like that. And, uh, and we had to, to dress up to go to career day or whatever. <laughs> and I had a fight with the principal. Actually, my parents had a fight with the principal who very much expected- You're fighting with authority? I'm shocked. <laughs> See, my parents fighting with authority, um, who very much expected me. Uh, I was a girl, I, hate, I hated wearing dresses. I'm still not a big fan of dresses. Um, and I wanted to wear slacks. And, you know, not like ripped jeans or tank tops, which by the way is what I wear to work now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I was supposed to, I was supposed to wear a dress, I wanted to wear slacks. And the principal was like, no, girls wear skirts. It's just like, no, they don't. This is, yeah, this is you know, 2000. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. But so the, the can thing gives me that vibe. I do not like people dictating what I'm supposed to wear, especially if I'm going to someplace I'm supposed to be working. Um, yeah, exactly. no, it's like, no, I'm here to watch a movie. I'm not here to wear, I'm not here to figure out what your stupid dress code is. Uh, exactly. Anyways. So yeah. But yes, I would love to go as just a person and enjoy it. I think that going as a person versus going as, as an actual critic would be a lot more fun to be honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that is, that's what's going on with Cannes this year. We'll be interested to see how all of that plays out. Although honestly, I'm more interested in some of the other film festivals that have already, that are announcing their slates, have already announced their slates, et cetera. Um, so I just, before we get into queer films, I wanted to talk about The Conjuring 3. Really briefly, we don't have to do a review or anything. It came out on HBO Max uh, yesterday. It's now been released in theaters. Um, you know, I got to watch it last night. It's, it's a lot of fun. I had a good time with it, but I like pretty much every single one of the Conjuring films, uh, including The Nun. So <laughs> take that as you will. Um, but one of the things that honestly drove me crazy uh, was that I saw a number of people complaining about the content of the film in terms of religion. <laughs> and first of all, I was like, have you not seen any conjuring films because this this is a thing that runs throughout all of them you know you like the entire thing that that there is a film called the nun um right. well and like so, in the first movie they make the huge point about how ed warren was like the only layman that was authorized by the catholic church to perform exorcisms yeah like it, it's a 
the issue, the question of faith and the issues of faith run throughout the Conjuring film. So you don't have to like that necessarily, but that is simply a part of the that universe, right? Mm -hmm. But what I found really weird about the reactions here is that people were complaining about the use of Catholicism, about the use of like the iconography and the, the lore, the church lore and all of this stuff. And I'm sitting there going like, it's the film is called The Devil Made Me Do It. It is literally a film about exorcism. Like that is the topic. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, have you never watched a horror movie ever? Because yeah. Three quarters of horror films, Catholicism in particular, is a major source for horror. It has been, I, I hate to say, it has been since like the 17th century. Mm -hmm. um, and now again, you don't have to necessarily like that aspect of horror, but it is a major integral part of horror. Well, especially when we're talking about, you know, uh, paranormal stories. Yeah exorcism ghosts demons you know all of that stuff the the whole that that's poltergeist you know a lot of it at some point you get you get some sort of religion that is coming into play and very often it is catholicism and i think that some of that there's there's a whole history of um kind of a weird relationship between catholicism and and the supernatural but i think that some of it is simply the use of ritual right catholicism mm -hmm. unlike a lot of, of other religions particularly unlike a lot of other christian religions is very ritualistic there's a lot there's a, a heavier divide between um between good and evil there is a lot of lore that is attached to that and so of course it's fairly natural that um that, a film, that films that are, are dealing with the supernatural, as you say, are going to, to use Catholicism as kind of the starting point. Uh, so I don't know, I just found it very weird that people were complaining about it, about this specific film. And it is very heavy on the, youth of Catholic, the use of Catholicism and the use of the rituals and the concepts and the ideas of faith and things like that. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you've got heroes that are running around wearing crucifixes uh, and that are using the Lord's Prayer to eject demons from bodies. I don't know exactly what you expect from this genre. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just say right now that if you, if, if folks are interested in watching the movie and they haven't yet and they don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead like a couple, like two or three minutes, because I'm going to say some things that are spoilery. Um, so this is your last warning. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that I was starting to talk to you about before we started recording was that I feel like the, the religion, the religious elements of the conjuring three are what make it make the story work because, you know, so many of these movies, like we were talking about exorcist, even the first two conjuring films, you know, it's, it's like these demons just kind of appear out of nowhere and just start tormenting people for no particular reason, just proximity or whatever. And one of the things that is um, an underlying element in, you know, outside of films, but in just like kind of the real world, um, when people talk about demons and possession and stuff like that, there's always this idea that that, that entity has been invited. And most films that deal with exorcism skip out on that part they don't get into um that that spirit or whatever being invited it's just kind of there and for the conjuring three 
I think that it really works because the whole the whole point of the movie and the the whole inciting incident of the movie is the fact that this is a demon that's been summoned for a particular reason and I feel like that actually makes this story work in some ways I, I don't think that this is as strong of a movie as the first two conjuring films but I think that in some ways that makes this story um a little bit more complete than the other two yeah I think that's an interesting point the one, the one issue that I had and maybe I missed it was that it didn't really give motivation for the initial summoning of the demon mm, I um, felt like it did well we could maybe we could talk about that off air because I was yeah. confused at a certain point I was like why, I, mean, I didn't think it was a very strong motivation but it does get into it like why why is this demon being summoned in the first place and that was one of the questions that i had about the movie but yeah it's 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 actually kind of nice to see okay this is because it's about human agency and i think that that's some of some of the things like um like the exorcist is more about uh targeting targeting innocence right mm-hmm. um but it's it's absolute evil Right. Yeah. So this, I, I don't even remember if there is much of an explanation as to why the demon inhabits Regan in, uh, other than the fact that she's innocent um, and they're Catholic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't be Catholic. Really... If, if you don't want to be, if you don't want to be possessed by demons, just don't be Catholic. <laughs> um, I mean, that's like, let's face yeah. it. Uh, but, but other than that, I don't think that there's much of an explanation as to why the demon chooses her over anybody else. Right. But which which does kind of invoke the sort of the 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 um, pointlessness of evil to a certain degree. Right. But it also means that there's no real culpability. Right. There's no human agency that is making choices that are resulting in this. Um, And I do kind of like I I agree with you. I like the fact that in The Conjuring 3, there is a human agency at work. Um, There's a reason behind this happening. It isn't just this demon got bored in hell one day and decided to target a kid you know yeah well and that's that's one of the things when it comes to supernatural like for me with horror i tend to prefer um like killers slasher movies where there's a killer coming after somebody then i then like monster movies or supernatural i like i i enjoy some of the supernatural horror and i'm getting more into it but one of the big reasons that i don't tend to prefer it is because how do you stop how do you stop something that you can't see doesn't have a physical form you know like it's i i what i like about horror is when there's something that can be stopped and um so i felt like with the conjuring 3 introducing that element like there's there's a tangible actual physical person that you can go after that you can put a stop to what they're doing rather than just you know praying a lot and hoping that it works well, and in some ways, actually, all of the Conjuring Universe films are, they're fairly comforting films to a certain yeah. degree, because there is this closed moral universe that they construct. Almost always, it isn't just, um, you know, there there is a human agency involved, or there is something, there is a rule that can be, um, that can fix the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even in something like Annabelle Comes Home, which I love, I think it's great, I yeah. want to watch it again. Um, where it's just, it's, it's kind of stupidity and non-belief and things like that, but you get this huge eruption of all of these supernatural things, but eventually it can be contained and controlled, right? And, and those, and 
I like that about the, the films. I don't necessarily want that in every single one of my horror films, but I like the fact that I can go into one of these Conjuring films and just be like, you know what, it's all, thing bad shit is going to happen, but it's all going to turn out okay in the end. And I kind of, I like that. <laughs> I like being able to go into a horror film and know that there is going to be a resolution to it. Mm -hmm. And then, then, you know, we're going to put Annabelle back in the case. We're going to, you know, put the goblet back on the table and it could come back in another movie, but for now it's over, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I quite like that. So yeah, I, I did recommend The Conjuring 3. I really liked it. Um, I had a good time with it. You know, it was a good kind of Friday night movie. And uh, I kind of wish I'd been able to see it in a theater. Not quite <laughs> comfortable going to a theater yet. Um, but one of the reasons for this is that it is a fairly dark movie. So just in yeah. terms of lighting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will so there are, places, there are places where I was like, what is happening <laughs> yeah so I did go see it in a theater because I didn't want to watch it in my house which may or may not be haunted and um it's you know I'm kind of weird like that like I'll watch the it, other it conjuring movies because I've seen them I'll watch <laughs> those in my house but not ones that I haven't seen I don't know it just makes it me is, feel weird but it is haunted Karen it is I, I'm pretty sure. sure it is um but uh <laughs> that's a whole other story for a whole other day um but uh I so I went and saw it yesterday in a theater, which the theaters right now are still, I think, 40% capacity is the max. So it's like, I was in a technically full theater, but there's nobody sitting next to me for like five seats. It was great. Um, but uh, they, they were showing the trailers before <laughs> and they showed a trailer for The Conjuring 3. And I was like, did I go into the wrong theater? <laughs> Like I thought that for a second and then a guy in front of me got up and went and checked and he comes back and he's telling whoever he's with, he's like, no, this is the right one. It was just so funny. It's like, wow. I like, they also showed the trailer for a quiet place too, which has already been out for a week or so. And so I was just like, oh, that's kind of funny, but I've never actually seen a trailer for the movie I'm about to watch while I'm seated for the movie. <laughs> I think that, that all all the theaters right now are just like, what is happening? There's we forgot how to theater. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. It was great. Oh, boy. <laughs> so just get to the movie. Don't show the trailer. Right. Right. Just get to it. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Anyway. So let us talk for a little while. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on other things, but let's talk for a little while about queer cinema, queer films. Um, this is a huge spectrum of films. We could talk about mainstream, you know, mainstream movies that have queer subtexts. Um, obviously, for a large portion of Hollywood history, and, and even for the history of a lot of other um, world cinemas, you really couldn't show or depict queerness explicitly. Right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't show um, you couldn't show women falling in love with other women. You couldn't show men falling in love with other men. You couldn't show uh, a, a combination of genders or gender or a anything that really smacked of non-binary. Um, you know, so it's it's been a process, and it's and it has taken a long time. And then for a very long time, the really the only way to depict queer characters was as villains. Um, or is somehow sick or twisted and, um, uh, and things like that. So a lot of the, it's one of the interesting elements of uh, what is usually referred to as queer horror, that there are a lot of queer characters that are queer coded throughout cinematic history, 
but they're very often they're very often using queerness as an indicator of perversity or evil. And on the one hand, this can be really interesting because you're essentially taking something that's been subsumed by the society, has been controlled by the society, and is coming out in monstrous ways. Um, but on the other hand, you're also vilifying queerness generally yeah. as, as something that's evil or perverted or wrong at some level, dangerous. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, of interesting things, a lot of pushing and pulling, I think, that, that has gone on um, over the course of queer cinema. But let's start with one of the questions that we got, uh, again from um, at Owen Daly. What are some great queer coded films from the golden age of cinema you'd recommend? So I have a few. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this, Karen? It's kind of a weird thing because there's, because it is all queer coded, it's all subtext. Like there's very few places where they're actually like, hey, we actually have a gay character <laughs> or yeah. um, a non-binary character. Um, why don't you go first on this one? <laughs> All right, the first one that I wanted to mention, um, I have actually mentioned this before because I'm not certain whether it's intentional, but it feels intentional, uh, is Vera Cruz, which is a 1954 Western starring Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster that is absolutely 100% the romance between Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster. There is a woman involved at some point. It does not matter. She does not count. This is about the two of them. And it is an incredibly queer Western. I was shocked actually by how queer it is. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster make out or, or have sex or anything like that, but there, there's an entire scene in which they're comparing the size of their guns um, and how well they shoot and how many targets they can hit at the same time. A lot of it is about the interaction between the two of them and about this kind of love-hate relationship that they set up and how much they care about each other and how much they hate each other at the same time. It is like, it's difficult to kind of put into context how queer this movie is. Because when I started watching, it's like, oh, it's a Western, you know, it's 1954 Westerns, good actors, you know, it's kind of on that cusp of the Western where things are getting a little bit more loose in Hollywood. Um, you're able to show more violence, you're able to show more sexuality, particularly within the context of something like a Western. But I was surprised by how far they actually went in depicting the most important relationship between being between these two men and their feelings about each other and you know, their need to show one another that they are you know, powerful, that they're manly, all of this stuff. And, and at one point, I'm not kidding, there's a scene between the two of them where I was just like, if they do not kiss at the end of this scene, then we have been robbed. <laughs> like this is, this is a, a romance basically. Uh, so yeah, I, I recommend that one. Veracruz from 1954. Um, cool. not, I really don't have any from like the golden age like nothing uh, it's because of my lack of knowledge not because they don't exist I think that it's it's difficult because again it you're, you're, you're often talking about coding you're talking about interpretation I saw mm -hmm. someone tried to argue that double indemnity is a queer film which I just don't buy that the the that there, there's an implication of, of you know, queerness between the, the Edward G. Robinson character and Fred McMurray. And it just doesn't work uh, in, in the context of that film. But I think that there are definitely some films where it does. You're always having to deal with subtext. 
when it comes to these movies. So I think in some ways, just looking at films as queer can sometimes change the way that you are watching the film. Um, very often when we talk about queer cinema, particularly in this period, we're talking about camp. Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the Douglas Sirk films, even though they are about often about heterosexual relationships, have a queerness to them. Um, so Magnificent Obsession, uh, um, the Wind movie, and now I can't recall the title of it. It's with Lauren Bacall. Um, you know, and pretty much anything with Rock Hudson is just like, there is something queer going on yeah. here. <laughs> giant, you know, let's talk about Giant and Rock Hudson and James Dean. Rebel Without a Cause uh, is is definitely, uh, definitely a queer-coded film. Um, one of the others that I wanted to mention, and I don't know whether it necessarily counts as, uh, as Golden Age because it's 1961 and it's, it's produced by um, American International Pictures, which is like the Roger Corman kind of films. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's Master of the World, starring Vincent Price and Charles Bronson. And again, it it's one of those that I went into being like, Price is always a little camp. Price is always a little like, um, a, a little uh, queer coded, like that's 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 the best way to put it. And Price himself was bisexual, uh, so and he plays that up. I think he plays up that that queerness, the sort of um, way in which he's he doesn't quite occupy the the position of the the manly hero, or but he's also not um, particular. He's not particularly being evil villain necessarily but master of the world is essentially vincent price and his flying gay airship and i'm not even kidding about that because the his entire his airship is he's this he's this guy who's attempting to stop all war by threatening to bomb everybody hmm. with his gigantic airship and he has created this like utopia in the sky that is entirely filled with men it is nothing but men, shirtless sailors. And again, it's like, we cannot not read this as queer necessarily. I don't know <laughs> how to read this any other way. Mm -hmm. um, it is a hilarious film. It's very much Vincent Price is, is like enjoying the heck out of it. But it's a lot of it really is about this like battle between this guy who's actually trying to do something good. He's trying to stop all war. The way he's trying to stop all war is by threatening to release weapons on all the different countries unless they stopped fighting. So it's it's this weird thing. But at the same time, he's got all of these you know shirtless men who are surrounding him, and it, it's just it's it's one of the most incredibly camp films I have seen. So awesome. Master of the World, 1961, technically based on a Jules Verne novel, a couple of Jules Verne novels, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just kind of um, open it up for uh, a little while. What are some of your favorite like queer coded explicitly queer films we can actually talk about you know explicitness mm -hmm. um one of mine it's a fairly recent film that's uh tangerine by sean baker i think um have you seen that one i haven't i haven't but i've heard really good things about it yeah it's funny because the first time i watched it 
I was so much more caught up in like, because basically it's, it's, um, uh, I need to look it up because I want to get the names of the, the performers correct, but, um, it's basically these women that are, are running around. It's in the course of like one night. It's like, I think it's New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve or something. And, um, it's, it's, uh, the, it's sex workers and, um, a couple, you know, their friends. And one of them is looking for her, her, uh, pimp. Um, I can't remember why it's been a while since I've seen it, but basically it's a lot of just like going from place to place, looking for this guy. And there's a lot of just like walking into places and yelling and just like (laughs) the first time I watched the movie, I was more caught up in like, oh, this is just LA on a Tuesday. Like just people walking into businesses (laughs) and just yelling. And it was just like, ah, it was a little too much for me, but I've watched it a couple of times and it's actually just this really, um, it's it's not just it's definitely not like a movie that i would say is a happy movie but it's it's very good because it's um it really gives you this this look into um the experience of of trans women of sex workers and how they're treated how they're looked at um how they're exploited and um but also the humanity in them and and that they are they are people that have feelings and and hopes and fears and you know it's it's, it's all of those things put in together and um it's yeah it's a really it's a really good film so if you haven't had a chance to watch it i highly recommend it in fact i'm gonna look and see i know it was on um netflix for a while i'm not sure if it still is but that's definitely one that, um, that you should, that you should watch. It's funny because, um, let's see. Oh, it's on Hoopla and Canopy. So you can check it out on either of those. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah. Whenever people make a big deal about like, Oh, Steven Soderbergh made an entire movie on an iPhone. It's like, yeah, Sean Baker beat him to that with Tangerine. <laughs> like he already did that. So, and Sean Baker, of course, is the director who also did, um, the Florida project. So. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. different movie. But one of the things that I think is so great about what he does with film is that he just has this gift for really, getting into the heart and humanity of people that society tends to overlook and not think two thoughts about. And that's what he does with Tangerine. So. Fairly early on too. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. now, particularly in the past couple of years, we've been talking more about trans rights and um, yeah. the inclusion of trans people in, uh, in, the community in community generally mm-hmm. and actually recognizing them as people because they are people yeah um, yeah well and actually casting trans actors to play these yeah. parts too because that's another that's another important thing there's been a lot i mean going back to the the 60s and 70s there have been trans characters in movies that were played by by cisgendered people and getting getting the opportunity for trans actors to be part of telling their own stories is really important 
Yeah, and, and it's finally happening, you know, mm-hmm. we're finally actually getting to that point, which is why we're having also so much reactionism um, yeah. that's happening in the world at large. But it's, you know, at, at that, it's a good thing. We're actually moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it, well, in terms of that, it's interesting because two, two of my favorite films, and I know that there are a lot of questions about these films and that there are, there are a lot of different feelings about them, but I love, I do love Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything. Yes. And, and the original that it's based on, um, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in, in both of those films, you've got, straight cisgender actors playing um, drag queens, right? And in the case of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you actually have Terrence Stamp playing a a transgender woman. Um, But both of those films, and they're they're very, one of the things I like about them is that even though Tu Wong Fu is a, is is a remake technically it does something completely different with the concept and mm-hmm. so you can watch both both films really easily and uh not feel like you're repeating anything yeah you know it's basically, basically three drag queens go on the road and that's it's a lot of fun <laughs> but i i like the fact that both of those are the first films that i remember that really them in the birdcage really yeah um, that really represented again drag queens not just you know they're funny they're entertaining all of that not but not just as humorous mm-hmm. or as as like almost something to to look at but not to understand they actually treated these characters as characters yeah. and as people who are in danger when they go to certain areas of the country that are in danger when they stop in this you know rundown town um and 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 at the same time, you also do have that humor. You have this this whole, I like it too long through the fact that there's this community that embraces them, that kind, and you never quite know. You're like, some of them definitely know that these are, are drag queens, mm-hmm. right? But some <laughs> others obviously just have no inkling of the fact that they're talking to, to drag queens at all. And, and I... One of the things that I really like is there's a scene nearing the end of Tu Wong Fu um, between Patrick Swayze and Stockard Channing, who've developed this beautiful friendship throughout the film. And it's at the point at which she acknowledges that she knows, right? She's not, she knows that 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 he's a man, right? Mm-hmm. And that she is, is essentially saying like, I'm not bothered by that. And that's, you know, I know that that's like, well, it's, it's small steps and everything, but it's good to actually see that on screen and to see that embrace to be like, that this isn't just about humor. This isn't, a, this also isn't about pain and suffering. This is about joy. Yeah. Well, and, and you touched on this one too, but the birdcage similarly, I mean, it's yeah. really funny and um it's a movie that is intended to be very funny, but it also does have some tender moments, like especially for the Nathan Lane character where he's used to, um, well, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think like, what is the proper pronouns there? I guess she, like she, the character, I, I, yeah, the character, the character identifies as she, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, she has these moments where she's just like, you know, she, there's, there's a great conversation between Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, um, when he's basically, Robin Williams is trying to get rid of her, um, for this visit from his future in-laws, and, and 
um, it's funny at first, but then you realize that she gets it and she gets that she's being dealt with instead of getting to be part of this family that she's always been part of. And it's just, it's, yeah, the, it's she, really sweet. Yeah. She raised their child. Yeah. I mean, she was, mm-hmm. she's his mother. Right. And, yeah. and there's that. And I, and that runs throughout the entire film where part of the pain that she's going through is the fact that her son is essentially saying like, I'm embarrassed by you, I'm rejecting you mm-hmm. because of who, because my future in-laws are bigots, right? right? And are not gonna understand or something like that. And that, that is part of that kind of pain. So yeah, you have this character that is very funny and um, tries so hard to sort of fit in or whatever to, to become what, his, what, what her family is, is expecting her to be. Mm -hmm. or wants her to be for this one moment and then finally is like you know this is not who she is it can't be you know right they and they are finally the ones who are are who have to understand that because they love her yeah exactly uh and yeah i i I love the birdcage too again it's one of the it's also one of those times where the first sorts of films that actually that we actually saw that depicted Mm -hmm. um non-heteronormative lifestyles that were more in the mainstream. A lot of these films are still mainstream. You've got Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, mm-hmm. and Gene Hackman. You have um, uh, Patrick Swayze and uh, Wesley Snipes, <laughs> yep. um, who have the biggest shoulders in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, those, those kinds of films are are great and and they are they do have problematic elements and I think that that's something that should always be acknowledged and we should also acknowledge this that they did also represent steps forward Mm -hmm. Um, yeah especially in terms of cinema yeah that's the thing and it's not to excuse but you have to look at at you know at the time that a movie like Tu Wong Fu came out um you know they it really and even now this is still a problem but it's like they when they release when a studio releases a movie like that they want big names attached to it and you know especially in the 90s there weren't big names that were known drag queens so it's like what are you know and it's not excusing that but um but yeah you know what i mean um Things are getting better, but you have to have those those steps along the way to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and two two other films that I wanted to mention really quickly because they're both right now available on Criterion Channel, and I really recommend that people go watch them. Are um, are Jacqueline Audrey Audrey's Olivia, and uh, which is a it's a I've I've talked about it before on this podcast. So I also reviewed it. Um, it is a, uh, it's a early French film from the 19, or not early, but it's a French film from the 1950s um, that is about a girls' school and is specifically about the kind of developing relationship between the um, headmistress of the girls' school and one of her students. And it's, it's a really, again, interesting film and a very um, major step forward in terms of the cinematic representation of, of lesbians. Uh, the other film is Machen in Uniform, which is a German film from, I believe, the 1930s, which is a, actually a similar plot. It's about a young girl uh, who goes to a boarding school and develops a crush on a teacher. And again, 
a, it, it isn't just about that, but both of these films actually, you know, deal with lesbian attraction, with um, the the attraction between, and and also some of the issues that are a part of that. So uh, both of these stories are about young girls, right, teenage girls, falling in love with older teachers, and how that is dealt with. Um, both of them are, I, I highly recommend, and both of them right now are available on Criterion. Cool. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of documentaries. Um, and the first one is uh, Paris is Burning. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking slowly because I'm trying to look up if it's available. It's still available on the Criterion channel. Um, great, great film from, I think, 19, uh, when is that from? Like 1990-ish? I think and yeah and it's a documentary about drag queens in New York City and um and it's it's about these uh elaborate balls that they have um that's a that's a great one you've seen that one too yeah yeah Paris is burning yes yeah so definitely one to watch um another one that uh is on netflix is called a secret love and it's um it's a really sweet documentary about this couple terry donahue and pat henschel i had to look it up and it's basically uh they're old now and they um they've been living in this relationship for for decades but they were living in secret one of them I mean, we've seen like movies about this too, but this is a documentary about a particular couple where they weren't out to, um, I think just to one of their families. I'm trying to remember. Um, but someone who had been a professional baseball player and she kept it secret, um, from her family forever. They did not know who, like who this woman was like that. They just thought they were friends and, um, so it's eventually like as they're getting old and they need to worry about, you know, taking care of each other in their old age and what's going to happen to them. Um, and they're dealing with illnesses and things. Um, eventually it's, you know, they're coming out to the family. And um, so that's a, that's a really, it's, it's actually, it's one of those that it's, it's really sweet, actually. Uh, it's sad that they had to spend so many decades hiding who they were and what their relationship was, but but the the watching what unfolds as they talk to the family is is really really great and then the other one just came out last year and that's welcome to chechnya did you see that one i haven't seen that one no it's on hbo and this one is harrowing because it's um it's essentially about um people who are living in chechnya who are um they're part of the lgbtq plus community so it's you've got um, gay people you've got trans folks um who have to get out because they they will be executed they can be executed or at the very least imprisoned for their sexuality and their gender identity and so it's about this group that they basically extract people they get them out of the situation um and take them safely across the border and then help get them placed as refugees and political um, asylum seekers in other parts of the world. And um, 
so it's about the the people that are doing that work it's about the people that uh, some of the people that they have rescued and what they have to do to be able to accomplish that and um they use this really fascinating like <laughs> some hollywood studio films could take a page out of out of their work their book because they use this deep deep fake technology to change people's faces and at first you don't even realize you're like wow this seems kind of dangerous for them to be showing their faces on camera and then at some point you realize like oh wait that's not really them it's uh they've kind of swapped out faces it's really fascinating the way they did that but yeah so three really great documentaries cool i i think i remember you talking about the last one um, yeah uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago or something like that yeah mm -hmm. those all sound those uh, paris is burning is great um oh, so the good. The, the other two sound really interesting. The one, mm -hmm. one documentary that I, I would like to mention and then we'll kind of close everything out is Circus of Books from 2019, which is a documentary uh, that's available on Netflix and is directed by Rachel Mason. And it actually um, chronicles the story of a books, a gay pornography bookstore uh, that in West Hollywood that has, has been kind of, became kind of a site for cruising, for the gay community, et cetera. And one of the interesting things about this, uh, this film is that it, it's directed by Rachel Mason. It's about her parents. Her parents are the ones who own the bookstore. And oh. they're this adorable little Jewish couple <laughs> that are just like, they're the last people in the world that you're like, they own a gay pornography store. Um, <laughs> But they're, and one of the wonderful things about us is that they're very sweet. They're very like, they, you know, they marched in some of the gay pride, par pride parades. They kind of formed the nucleus of, um, of the gay community. And partially because, and I think one of the things that a number of the people uh, that are interviewed in the, in the documentary talk about is the fact that they were essentially good parent stand-ins, that you have a community, particularly in the 1980s, who's, many of whom have been rejected by their families. And you also have the AIDS crisis going on at the same time. And they have this, this you know, little place that they can go to that is this mom and pop store, basically and to feel comfortable hmm. and to feel safe and it's it's a it's a lovely little film it's sad because the the store the entire structure is that the store is going out of business because it's just no longer doing the business that it needs to um but it is also just very entertaining to see these, these little old people going to you know like sex toy conventions and and find, <laughs> you know being like oh you know i like you know finding boxes of dvds and be like oh i remember this he was a big star back in those days and it's like it's all gay pornography um <laughs> And, uh, but they, you know, knew their business really well. It's, it's a very sweet film. It's very like touching. Awesome. I have not seen it. I will watch it. So yeah, that's, that's on Netflix. So we have one more question that I think is really good to close things out on, um, which is again from Owen Daly. What celebrity from the queer community would you most want to see a biopic of that we have not gotten yet? And he uh, suggests William Haynes. My suggestion is Dorothy Arzner. Yes, I, I second that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
because Dorothy Arsner, who was not the only female filmmaker working in the 1930s, please don't say that. She's the only female filmmaker who's working in the studio system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that is absolutely accurate. But she she was a lesbian. She was a fairly out lesbian. Like she was, she didn't conceal it particularly as much as you can be out in 1930s in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was a, a fantastic director, obviously, made some really interesting films and um and had a a long-term relationship with another woman and was remarkable in a lot of ways just for for being able to continue to carve out this this part of hollywood for herself um that finally ended and she essentially lost her career by the time uh the production code really came in in full force but she was she's a fascinating figure and definitely one that deserves even she's been getting more attention over the past few years um but she deserves more she really deserves to have the accolades that uh that she has been denied up until this point yeah yeah for sure i i mean i don't think that there's a a more appropriate selection than her so i co-sign all right, so I think that that is going to close us out for this episode. I just um, wanted to say Jennifer's body is now on Hulu, so go watch yes. it. <laughs> no excuses. I rented that movie. I finally got to the point where I was like, I still haven't seen this and I need to see it, so I'm just going to rent it. But now it's on Hulu, so everybody should watch it. Yes. Uh, so I think that that is going to close us out for this episode. Thank you so much for wa- or for watching, for listening. Also, go watch movies. Uh, <laughs> watch a lot of movies <laughs> thank you so much for listening and as always we are very grateful to our patrons uh, who include adriana ali heather james kathleen cariata mason matt matthew michelle monty nanina robert robert steve sharon tau and will thank you so much guys and you do have a new bonus episode that is up uh let us know if you're able to listen to that if there are any issues with it and you know speaking of pride month it is about alma bovar's women on the verge of a nervous breakdown so it fits in really well um in in addition to that we hope to be bringing more bonus content before long and we're trying to get some other things going now that we're both sort of more settled i i hopefully will be able to do some of that if you do want to join our patreon that's patreon.com slash citizen dame and you help us to keep the lights on to keep things paid up and uh and keep us going and it's really nice and you get some fun stuff in addition um, if you want to get anything from our Zazzle store, that is zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. We do have masks as you should still be wearing them, um, even though we get to take them off every once in a while now. We also have a Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame, um, where you can just toss us a couple of dollars uh, if you feel like it without making the Patreon commitment. Um, we have our website. Website is citizendamepod.com, where I will be putting up some reviews of some Blu-rays before long. And I think that Karen has one or two reviews coming up and I'm covering Tribeca for us. I think that you're also going to be doing some Tribeca reviews. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So that will be fun. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at citizendamepod at gmail.com and just be nice. Otherwise, we're just going to ignore you. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we do have a letterbox, although I'm not certain what we've done with that so far. We're going to try to do more with it, I promise. That's we're at, c- <laughs> at Citizen Dame. And of course, you can get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. And you can get in touch with us individually uh, in a number of different places. Karen, where are you? 
I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye. What the hell? I'm sorry, but I cannot take this anymore. Noxie, could you take care of Miss Carol Ann? Virgil and I have something we must discuss. So, Virgil, I gather you like hitting ladies. Uh, some ladies need to get hit. Uh-huh, then conversely, some men need to be hit back. Oh! Oh! Oh, oh, Caroline, there's something you should know about Vita, mommy. Well, Vita works out. Vita works out. Yeah. A lot. <laughs>